0: So we pick up the thread here in chapter four, verse one, and I'm going to read and pause and read and pause and then pray and then try and explain it to you. Okay. So in verse one, we read that he began to teach again, teach, note, by the sea, and such a very great multitude gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, and then he goes on to tell this very well-known parable. But you must note that the crowd has really mobbed him to such a degree that he has to kind of escape into a boat, and Mark wants you to see that. And, um, and of course, he begins to teach in parables. Now, we are so familiar with this idea, but what are parables, and how do they work? And so that's a key question that we need to get to. And it is a striking parable. So we read uh, Jesus saying this in verse 3, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow, and it came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. And other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. And other seed fell. Into the good soil, and as they, um, they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this is a striking parable. Let's just pause for a moment. And it's an agricultural metaphor. And it is an agricultural metaphor that I think produces incredible existential angst within us, right? You're haunted (laughs) by this question. Oh, shucks, which soil am I? Okay? And... um, but of course, that is our sort of Western ears listening to this parable. If you had Middle Eastern ears and not supermarket fed mouths, um, you would have heard this parable very differently. The most striking thing about this parable is not the existential angst, but the fact that any sower would sow, sow indiscriminately. Who, the, I was saying some grass seeds recently, and I was, ve- and I'm not a sower. But I knew where I wanted those seeds to go. No sower sows so indiscriminately. That's the first thing a Middle Eastern ear would hear. This is ridiculous. Why so so liberally? Okay. And then the second thing, of course, because we're not agricultural people, is to note that in spite of this incredible sense of loss, three quarters of it, there is an extraordinary yield. It is beyond normal to have a 30-fold healed. It's already outside of the bounds, right? But to have 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold is extraordinary. Those are the two extraordinary things about the parable, which we do not hear. But then follows a little interlude, verse 10. And as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, now here it becomes a little bit dark, (laughs) He's saying, to you has been given the mystery, or in some translations, the secret of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. Well, that blows your whole theory about parables being sort of earthly stories with easy heavenly meanings, right? In order that, verse 12, while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. That puts an incredibly awkward spin on the whole thing. In fact, it is quite disturbing. One-third of the synoptic Gospels are parables, and here Jesus suggests that parables are not those make spiritual things easy and simple kind of story we often think they are. They're in fact the opposite. And what is very troubling is this word mystery or secret. Am I in or am I out. Verse 14. So another thing that Mark does, of course, he, he puts these stories together so that the composite actually yields, you, yields a, a, a composite interpretation. But in verse 14, Jesus goes on to interpret the parable for them. He says, um, "Oh, actually verse 13, I left that out. He said, do you not understand this parable? And how will you understand all the parables? This parable is the clue to all the parables. Note that. The sower sows the word, and those are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones in whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty and a hundredfold." And then from verse 21 to 25, do I don't know what I have up behind me, but I'm not going to read that, uh, you have a parable about a lamp on a lampstand. And then from verse 26 to 29, you have a parable about a guy who sows the seed and goes to bed and sleeps at night. And then from verse 30 to 32, you have the very well-known parable of the mustard seed. Okay, All these are together. And then we read these words in 33, And with many such parables he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it, and he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Okay, I hope you suitably disturbed so that we can get to the meaning of this parable. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we um, do not have the ears to hear and the eyes to see, were it not for the power and the grace that you grant us, in Jesus and by the power of your Spirit. And so we ask, Lord, that you would be at work in our midst, that we may see the Lord Jesus more clearly and uh, love him more, and behold him, and uh, that you put in us a desire to follow him very closely. And we ask that in his wonderful name. Amen. Okay. Let me speak to you for a moment about parables. The Hebrew word for parable um, Mashal suggests actually a dark saying, a riddle, a secret simultaneously hidden and revealed, or as someone put it, well, an imaginary garden with real toads. Okay. Lovely illustration. So parables are interesting things because they are both inventational, they invite you in, and they are confrontational. They pull you in and they push back against you. And therefore, the problem with parables is that they demand interpretation. And so Jesus actually helps his disciples. And friends, that's our problem. (laughs) We also need... Interpretation, And the dominant theme of the whole chapter is that of hearing, of understanding, of interpreting. In twice, in verse 9 and verse 23, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That is the imperative. That's the command. Do you have the ears to hear? Will you hear? And then in verse 24, he adds... Take care what you listen to. Consider carefully what you hear. So here is the danger for you having decided on this horrible wet day to get out of bed and to come to this building, right? Because now you are under the hearing and therefore under this command to listen carefully to this word from Jesus. But because we are so familiar with this parable, really what I want to focus on is how you might have heard this parable this morning. And um, and what I'm doing, going to do is I'm going to give you sort of three ways in which you might have heard it and then uh, let you decide which might be the better way. And I'm going to use the categories um, uh, of a French Christian guy, Jacques Hillel, never mind, he's not important. Um, But Elal suggested in the 20th century that as human beings, we tend to interpret reality in one of three ways. We either look at reality uh, from a religious perspective, or we look at reality from a magical, what he calls a magical perspective, or we look at reality from a biblical perspective. So let me interpret the parable for you accordingly, and then let's reason together. Okay, so let me start with the religious interpretation. It's very hard for you hearing that parable not to have asked yourself, which soil am I? Okay. Which one is me? Hands up. Okay. Don't put hands up. It's okay. Am I the hard road for whom the word is, from whom the word is snatched away the instant it lands? Well, perhaps not. Otherwise, I might not be here giving Jesus another hearing. Okay. Or am I a rocky, shallow ground, joyful for a moment, but damned to unbelief because there's just not enough depth in me? That's quite terrible. I want to believe, but I don't have the stuff with which to believe. I really want to, but I just can't. I don't have this gift or this talent of faith, as faith is so often misconstrued in our times as a gift or a talent. What utter rubbish. Okay. Or am I thorny ground? Sorry, let me rephrase that. Faith is a gift by the Spirit of God, but not a natural gift that some people have and others don't. Did I make that clearer? Okay. Almost in real trouble. Or am I thorny ground, so entangled in the weeds of my desires? And uh, this is where... uh, JB enters the game. Uh, My anxieties and my lusts and all the things that crowd Jesus out, am I doomed to a life of duplicity? Is that my fate? Double-mindedness. All of life, I'm going to want to believe, believe in Jesus, but just somehow can't. And so I will remain a deeply troubled person all my life and eventually be lost to faith. Am I that one? Or am I good how are you today? I'm good, thanks. <laughs> we always say that, I'm so good. I love to tell people, no, actually you're not. But only Jesus is good, but um, that's uh, uh, that's our habit. Okay. So I hope you feel a little bit troubled by me putting it to you like that. Just a little bit disturbed. Because quite frankly, the worst outcome could be that you are the good one. That you are so full of pride and self-deceit as to presume that your eternity, your eternal destiny is really in your own hands. Located somehow in something deep intrinsically good within you or your ability to remain good. Furthermore, that would belie the whole gospel. What is the meaning of having a gospel of grace? Of God giving us something that we can't deserve if my rockiness or my thorniness is an impossible hindrance to God and destines me to unbelief. Do you understand? We've got a problem here. Okay. In fact, on the basis of a religious interpretation of the parable, you only have one in four chance of making it. I'm sorry. Okay. And when you do make it, you might be self-deceiving. That's not good news. Okay, so I think there must be a more satisfactory or a better gospel reading of this parable than this kind of decontextualized, individualist, moralist kind of interpretation. Lots of big words, I'm sorry. But you get them. Right? You understand what I'm getting at. So how about a magical interpretation of this parable? A second way in which you can read this parable, taking in the difficult bit there from verse 10 to 13, is where Jesus talks about the mystery of the kingdom, is what one could call a mystical or a magical interpretation of the parable. And it's often expressed like this. Okay. Maybe you've heard this before. The clue to Jesus, friends, is a secret. Okay, And the kingdom of God belongs to those who have the secret, who are in on the secret, the ones who have cracked the code. And in church history, this is nothing other than the old Gnostic gospel or the Da Vinci Code version of truth. Lots of that around. In our context, it's often expressed uh, in different ways. But one way in which um, it could be that the, the uh, would be like this. For the church to become subservient to men or women who claim extraordinary revelational gifts. The church becomes subject to people who tell you, I tell you the truth, or I have the words of truth. Okay, And you know, there are many people who are extraordinarily gifted in these ways. People who claim to speak for God, but who actually do not allow themselves to be held accountable to ordinary Christians. When a little old lady in the congregation says a but... Mr. Min- Mr. Minister, so and so. I don't actually agree with you. And she is shunned or quietly shuffled out the back door. That's when we need to be worried. Okay or when these people uh, refuse to be challenged by the very plain or obvious reading of Scripture. The book of Jude actually is full of that kind of character. You should read that. And he has a, he has a very frightful illustration there of these people who have come among you, um, kind of Balaam kind of characters, right? And um, who who are hidden reeves in your love fest, you know, it's a wonderful illustration. I mean, you, you are sitting on the deck of a yacht in the Mediterranean and the waves are quietly lapping and you're sipping your martini and whatever. And the next moment, you hit a reef and your ship sinks. Okay, it's that kind of illustration. Another way in which it is often expressed, and perhaps not here in South Africa, but in Canada where we lived for a long time, it was frequently expressed like this. Maybe this sounds familiar to you. Jesus was a very spiritual person. A very spiritual person. And Jesus chose to express himself in poetic and enigmatic, thought-provoking, open-ended stories of ambivalence and ambiguity. Lots of words, eh? And, but really, that is the kind of language. And uh, his use of the word mysterion, the word secret or mystery, is really an expression of a personal, hidden path that you must find for yourself. And you will unlock the secret to life when you find that clue. Okay. Now, in both examples that I've just mentioned, parables function as veiled signposts, sort of subtle indications of for those who are really in the know already, and it guides us on a mysterious path only found by some. But the fact that the word mystery here means something entirely different, and I'm going to explain that to you in due course. Um, shows that Jesus clearly has the intent for the parable not to be ambiguous or confusing, but in actual fact, decisive. So there must be another way to read the parable. Okay, so let me see how I can help you. Are you hanging in there? This is a lot of words. Sorry, you okay? What would a biblical interpretation of this parable look like? And I, I do offer this to you with fear and trepidation, Um, and, um, and by all means, if, if, if what I am going to say to you, and it's not rocket science, but if what I say to you, you know, really disturbs you and you, and you feel that, look, this, I've stepped out of line, please come talk to me. Okay. So I offer this to you in, um, in humility. So the first thing I think to note here in this parable, is clearly that it is a warning to its original hearers to take care of how they are to listen. How they listen, hearing and receiving the word. That is, the word who is Jesus, and the word that Jesus speaks, right? How you receive that is of critical significance, okay? It's the equivalent of soil receiving seed, Okay, You get that. But here are some of the things, and so that is before us, friends. We can't escape that. But here are some of the things that you might have missed that the original hearers would have heard. And, um, and it's really critical for us to try and hear this text as the audience would have received it. I mean, who are they? Where are they? And what were their hopes? So when this young miracle-working rabbi um, came onto the scene, he begins to gain unprecedented popularity. This is Mark's point, by the way, of him having to get into the boat. This is unprecedented. Who has such popularity that he cannot even speak in a group, but has to actually get in a boat in order not to be trampled upon? Okay. It also comes then at a time of immense political volatility. Take, for example... A man getting up on a soapbox on campus or somewhere in Stellenbosch talking about land invasion. And you have your illustration. Okay, So here's a large gathering, a public gathering, that might suggest that something revolutionary is on foot. Okay, And Mark wants you to get that, especially given the Roman occupation of the time. Now, when you add to that the rhetoric, the nature of the illustration that Jesus gives, that of the image of a harvest, this makes matters worse. Because the Old Testament prophetic injunction is that God will come, and when he comes, there will be a harvest. And this illustration of harvest is really the fulfillment of the promises of the God of Israel, that he will establish them as a nation in their own land before all of the watching world. And when you add these things together, you have a parable that really transcends our individualistic notions of anxiety about your personal salvation. There is more going on here, friends, than meets the eye. May I be very rude to you and say this, this parable is not about you. Okay? Not yet. <laughs> but for now. It is not about you. It's primarily about the hope of Israel. It's about Israel's hope. Friends, this is important for Christians. This is not an academic side point, right? This is about the coming of the kingdom of God in Jesus. This is about the rule of God on earth. This is what your deepest longings are really for, that God would rule, that God would come. That God would change the world. That God would address the brokenness and the sinfulness of life outside the garden. This is what this is about. This is about the fulfillment of God's greatest promises that he had made. The greatest of his promises that he had made in the past. And if this is so, presuming then that Jesus actually is the Messiah, the King of God's kingdom, the Lord of the harvest who has finally come after all these years, what does he find? Do you know what he finds? Large-scale unbelief. Three-quarters seed wasted. Enormous wastage, enormous unbelief. And the question that arises immediately then is, well, if this is so, will there be a harvest? is it possible in the midst of so much unbelief and opposition against the gospel, against the Christians, against those who follow Jesus, will there be a harvest? Will the kingdom of God come about? And the answer is a resounding yes, 30, 60, hundredfold. fold. Now at this point, if you were in the story of the Bible, you'd actually get up and shout. Because this is an incredible parable. The parable of the fact that the kingdom of God will come has come and cannot be stopped in spite of unbelief. In spite of massive unbelief, Jesus suggests that the kingdom of God will be established. Friend, that is incredible news for us. That's incredible news. So you say, well, okay, JB, I still don't get the reason for parables. Why parables? And the answer to that question is actually in verse 12 that we read over. And I'm going to go back there for a moment. So if you have a Bible, and if it is possible to put that up on the screen, verse 10 to 12, I'll read that little section again. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began to ask him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are on the outside get everything in parable. Note, those who are on the outside. In order that, here's the disturbing bit, that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. Now those words, friends, come from Isaiah chapter 6. Okay? And if you don't read Isaiah chapter 6, you're not going to understand what's going on there. Because in Isaiah chapter 6, those are the words of the commission of Isaiah. This is Isaiah's ministry. He is to proclaim to Israel both God's imminent judgment and his ultimate salvation. Those always go together. To the people of God, Isaiah says, here I am. There is judgment upon you if you don't believe, but there is salvation to you if you do follow me. And what Jesus is saying is that Isaiah's commission has found its ultimate fulfillment in him, in himself. And the fact that Jesus speaks in parables confirms that. Friends, do you know that parables are unique to Jesus? Totally and absolutely unique to Jesus. I was once in a seminar where they asked a biblical scholar, a uh, very famous guy, and um, not a doctrinal guy, sort of a biblical studies guy, and they said to him, you know, um, why would you believe in Jesus? Why would you hold to the deity of Christ? And he said one of the most odd answers that I'd ever heard, and it was totally from the left field. And he said, because he speaks in parables, we are so familiar with it, we don't realize how extraordinary It is. And so what Jesus is doing is enacting; he's bringing about the final fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Friends, that's good news. Because Isaiah's prophecy is about God's grace and God's forgiveness. And therefore, that word secret or mystery is not a code to be cracked and known by few. In fact, the word mysterion is the very opposite of the way we use it. It means here is something that has been hidden. For ages, and we've been waiting for it and waiting for it. This mystery has now been unveiled, revealed in Jesus. The word mystery means something long hidden, but now revealed. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 6. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Now listen very carefully, because this is where we get stuck. And I'm going to choose my words In fact, I'm going to read them, (laughs) just to be safe. What Jesus is saying here is not that the parables themselves are a means to prohibit belief and therefore affect judgment, but that whenever the truth of the gospel is spoken by any means, and particularly in parables, it will evoke rejection and unbelief in those who will not believe. Jesus says it differently in John chapter. He says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. But at the same time, it will bring about the power of salvation within all of those who look to Jesus in faith. Parables are dangerous, but they're beautiful. So let me state it again. The strong words of God in Isaiah 6 and in Mark 4 are not an indication that God does not desire To give and forgive, but that the word of God provokes and brings to the surface a response in the heart of men and women either to accept or reject God's offer in Jesus Christ. It's a simple point, really, friends. When Jesus enters the room, there's no more neutral place. There's no gathering in the middle. Some people on that side, some people over there, we can all gather in our own little place. When Jesus enters the room, it's one side or the other. Have you not experienced that? Have you not seen that? Here is the thing about Jesus who came and suffered and died and was raised, right? He is the fulcrum of human history. Human history swings around him. It cannot depart from him, cannot forget him, cannot let him alone, and neither can you. Here you are. So let me try and wrap it up for you a little bit. How do you now know if you've understood the parable right? You're like, Ah, oh, finally, <laughs> let's get there now. That is really not about me, but about the kingdom of God in Christ. Well, let me show you very briefly that it is so. If you look at the remaining parable, starting in verse 21 to 25, you have a parable in which Jesus and his bringing of the kingdom is likened to a lamp that you bring in, Right? And the lamp will shine. You can't put a bucket on it, right? You can't cover it. It will shine. Okay? And Jesus is saying the kingdom will come. The lamp will shine, however much you try and put a bucket on it. In verse 26-29, the kingdom is revealed as a power of God by which the seed grows in the soil by itself. The farmer sows the seed, he goes to bed at night, and he sleeps. And then, in a way, without our attendance, without independently and incessantly, the seed grows on its own. Friends, you cannot grow the kingdom of God. Just chill out. Right? God alone grows the kingdom. He is the giver of the kingdom. He grows the kingdom. Come, be with the kingdom. And then verse 32, 32, there's a parable in which the kingdom looks small and entirely insignificant like a tiny, tiny mustard seed, and yet when you plant it in the ground, it grows large, and the birds of the air nest in it. A wonderful picture from Ezekiel, from this tree in Zion, where the nations, not just for the Jews, where even the nations gather in. You know that you, this morning, are a picture of the mustard seed, totally in its, in its complete fulfillment. From the perspective of this document, this is a glorious fulfillment of that very parable. It's amazing. Such is the power of the kingdom of God in Christ, friends. That's what we need to hear again. Okay. So what about us? How then does this parable apply to me? How does it apply to you? Well, here's how it does. Have you believed in Jesus? this morning? Have you trusted in him? Have you? Well, then you are the seed that has not fallen to the wayside. Then you are indeed the good soil. There's only two ways to live. Then you too are part of the rich harvest of God, the kingdom of God. And what this parable does, friends, if you are a believer this morning, if you are someone who's trusted in Jesus, it does not call on you to be consumed by moral anxiety or moral performance. Please, let it go. Let it go. (laughs) Right? Okay. If you've believed in Jesus, friends, that's enough. That is complete. You see, soil number three was the death of me. Always. Soil number three, right? You know what? It's the death of everyone. It's the death of everyone, especially as you get older. And here are the perpetual whisperings of the evil one whispering in my ears. Hey, look at the thorns, look at the thorns, look at the thorns. Until the Holy Spirit convicted me that if I believed in Jesus, I belonged to Jesus. Warts and all, as Cromwell used to say, right? Thorns and all. I belong to him if I believed in him. And I hope that is a word of deep encouragement to you this morning. Friends, Christianity is not moralism, right? Either on the anxiety side or on the performance side. Whether you do not well or whether you do well. That is not the gospel, right? It's the antithesis of the gospel, And in the same way, I think this parable also rallies against our sense of anxiety in life, our life anxiety. You see, here you are, in spite of large-scale unbelief, here are we, here we are, large-scale unbelief in the world. Have you thought about that? Of course you have, right? And you here this morning, you've placed your bets on Jesus, right? You like one of those classical casino scenes where you take all of your money and you move it to that number. You moved it to the number of Jesus. You have taken the whole gamble, right? And you've put it all on Jesus and you ask yourself, is this going to deliver, man? Is this going to pay off? Is this actually going to go, right? Right? Or am I going to lose everything? And the answer is a resounding yes from the lips of Jesus. The kingdom of God will grow 30, 60, 100-fold, friends. And I know many of you are struggling. I understand struggles. I may not understand yours, but I certainly know my own (laughs) deeply. And I understand all the fears that come with that. And into your travail and into the sense of embattlement that you experience as a Christian this morning, I want to tell you that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He's the God of springtime, friends. He's the God of the riches of the harvest, and he will deliver. There's not a single promise that Jesus made that he has not fulfilled. So this morning, I want to encourage you from this parable, right, not to be anxious but to rejoice and to find a source of deep encouragement within you by the Spirit of God that you've put all your trust in the right person. May that be a great word of encouragement to you this morning. Let's pray. Father God, you know all of us as we sit here this morning and as we think through all these things, so many thoughts, so many questions confusions in our own minds, so many troubles in life, um, so many uh, decisions. And uh, we ask, Lord, this morning that before us there would only be one hope and one joy and one trust, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give us the grace and the empowerment um, to lean into you entirely. And uh, like Paul, we can say that we are not ashamed. We know whom we've believed. We know that you are able to guard that which we've entrusted to you. Lord, please hear us again this morning. We trust you. We lean into you. And we trust that you will ultimately bring all things to fruition, that you are ours and that we are yours.